fall. It means there's a crisp chill in the air. It's time to gather wood for the season's first fire, and the leaves are piling up outside. But along the coast of South Carolina, fall is kind of like summer, only cooler. Fires are simply for roasting oysters, and the only raking you might do is in a sand trap of one of our many challenging golf courses. Tap now to discover the joys of fall on the coast of South Carolina, or visit fallinsc.com. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. I'm a national democratic political strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C., and a political analyst for KNX and uh, news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for progressive issue groups, uh, labor unions, and Democrats. If you have any ideas for Deadline DC uh, or suggestions for the show, or if you want to learn more about my political polling company, the best way to reach me is on Twitter, and my Twitter handle is at Brad Bannon. This week, we have two guests on Deadline DC. In the first half hour, our guest will be Hope Fry, who you can see there if you're watching us, uh, who is the founder and executive director of Project Lifeline. Then in the second half hour, the editor-in-chief of Politicus USA, Sarah, Join, Sarah Jones, joins us to discuss the hot political news of the day in a week. First, though, we have this clip from CNBC TV uh, on the uh, recent Supreme Court ruling, uh, the back to Mexico ruling uh, that impinges on the Biden administration's uh, ability to handle the immigrant crisis on the Mexican border. Migrants seeking asylum in the United States will once again be forced to wait out their cases in Mexico. The Supreme Court ruled just yesterday that the White House must restart that Trump-era remain-in-Mexico policy. According to the American Immigration Council, quoting now, forcing vulnerable families and children to wait in provision camps in Mexico puts their lives at risk, while also making it nearly impossible for them to access the asylum process. But attorneys general in Texas and Missouri who sued the Biden administration argued that that policy served to discourage such futile and dangerous journeys and is an indispensable tool in addressing the ongoing crisis at the southern border. NBC's justice correspondent Pete Williams is with us now. Pete, what's the basis of this ruling and what happens next? Well, the Supreme Court really didn't say much here. It seemed to suggest that the uh, White House could no more turn this program off than President Trump could have turned off the DACA program. But it does involve one of the first things that Biden did after taking office, ending the Trump administration program, the Remain in Mexico program. It required people seeking asylum to wait 
outside the country while their claims were considered, and that led to tens of thousands of people lingering in these makeshift tent cities. And human rights groups said many were attacked by criminals and drug gangs. But the two states that sued to get it going again uh, succeeded in the lower courts. They ruled in their favor, and what happened late Tuesday night is that the Supreme Court refused to intervene. So that leaves those lower court rulings against the Biden administration in place. And by the way, the court's three liberals said they would have blocked the program. As you noted, it was Texas and Missouri that filed the lawsuit, arguing that when President Biden stopped it, the number of migrants trying to enter the country skyrocketed. And they said that's because migrants know that even though the vast majority of asylum claims are rejected, most people are released into the U.S. to wait. So they said remain in Mexico takes that incentive away. Now, the Department of Homeland Security says it will do what it can to conform to the court rulings. But the U.S. can't simply restart the program on its own. It'll again require the cooperation of Mexico, which was not involved in this litigation and is not very happy about this development. Okay, that was a uh, clip from CNBC News on the recent uh, Supreme Court ruling uh, dealing with uh, immigration. Our guest in this half hour is Hope Fry. She's an internationally recognized immigration lawyer focused on disadvantaged populations, especially women and children. She is the co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline, a nonprofit focused on children who were are or were in immigration detention uh, in jail, shelters or uh, family detention facilities. Uh, if you want to learn more about Project Lifeline, their website is projectlifeline.us. Uh, the Twitter handle is um, at Project Lifeline. Hope, welcome back to Deadline DC. Thanks Thank for you, joining Brad. us today. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Uh, you know, I we haven't heard much about this issue. People have been focused on Afghanistan, uh, but I wanted to bring you on because um, I've uh, I think it's an issue that deserves a lot of discussion. Uh, first, tell us, uh, fill us in on that clip about the Supreme Court ruling and the impact it will have on the border. Uh, you know, Brad, the ruling was just on the injunction. The lower court found that the Biden administration could not stop MPP uh, with a policy order, but instead in a very technical decision um, that they had to go through an administrative process if they wanted to end it. The court didn't say they couldn't end it. They just said, you've got to go through uh, a process to do that. What was appealed to the Supreme Court was an application for an injunction blocking the implementation of that order, not appealing the order itself. And the Supreme Court said that the government just didn't meet the standard for getting an injunction. It wasn't saying that the holding of the court was correct. So the government will now appeal the holding of the court to the Fifth Circuit and if they lose there to the Supreme Court. Um, but what is the effect of it? Uh, the government argued, and, and just one thing I want to say just parenthetically, Government, Governor Abbott from Texas um, has made blocking immigrants a main theme of his uh, administration. Yeah, it's much more priority for him than fighting COVID, for example. 
exactly. Uh, and many other issues that he, uh, electric grid, for example, things he should be focused on. And this is just one of the things that he did. But in the court papers arguing that ending MPP was creating a hardship for Texas, uh, he argued that immigrants coming would apply for driver's licenses and that uh, screening them for eligibility was going to tax the government's uh, budget. So, it, you know, the, the arguments themselves were, were somewhat specious. Um, but anyway, uh, he argued that ending MPP resulted in the influx of immigrants that we've seen in recent times. And that's simply not true. Um, these programs like MPP and separation of children that were designed to be deterrents have shown not to be. If stripping babies from parents doesn't deter people, what's making people remain in Mexico uh, while their uh, papers are processed for deportation, what's that going to do? Uh, nothing. Uh, immigrants come because they're fleeing conditions uh, that they have a right to uh, come to the United States and make applications for asylum. MPP didn't limit the numbers. The government did a thing called metering, where they made people stand on the bridges entering the United States. And they said every day, you know, 50 people can come in, 25 people can come in. Those people were processed for deportation hearings and sent back to remain in Mexico. It wasn't like everybody who was coming was processed. Those people were given notices to appear that didn't have dates on them. So when it finally got to be their date, they had no way, the government had no way to let them know. So 60% of those people were ordered deported in absentia. Uh, this is a horrible uh, uh, intrusion into our, into our justice system. 1,500 of those people were had documented reported cases of violence against them. Um, so MPP didn't do anything but create a mess at the border, dangerous conditions, and deprive people of their rights uh, to seek asylum under our judicial system. Okay. Uh, we're uh, talking to Hope Fry, uh, the co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline, talking where she's here to discuss with us the plight of immigrants on the Mexican border. Uh, we're going to go to break now, but when we uh, come back, uh, we're going to have more of Hope and more of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon, and we're just going to discuss the efforts to reunite uh, families, immigrant families who were separated by the Trump administration, uh, and um, other issues uh, affecting uh, immigration. So don't go anywhere. Uh, we're taking a short break with our radio listeners, but uh, we will continue this interview with Hope uh, with our viewers on Periscope TV, uh, Facebook Live, and uh, YouTube. So don't go anywhere. Uh, we'll be right back with more of Hope Fry from Project Lifeline on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon right after this short break. Brad. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is Hope Fry, co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline. We're talking about the situation on the Mexican border. Uh, Hope, 
uh, when during the presidential campaign in 2020, uh, Joe Biden said a number of times that it would, if he was elected, uh, he would make it a priority to reunite immigrant families uh, who had been separated. Uh, how's that going? Um, right away when he became president, President Biden uh, tried to make good on that promise and created an interagency task force on the reuniting of families. Uh, and he put at the head of that Michelle Branet, who is excellent. She is a former director and founder of the uh, Women's Refugee Commission. Um, but like any governmental body, it moves somewhat slowly. They identified 3,900 children who had been separated between uh, July 1st, 2017 and January 20th, 2021 under the zero tolerance policy. And they've reunited 1,786 of those um, children, which leaves over 2,000 for whom um, there are no confirmed reports of, of reuniting. So they're looking for parents uh, in the Central American area. Um, but, you know, there were no records kept. So identifying children and matching them with their parents is a very difficult job. But the task force has another job besides reuniting families, and that is making recommendations for what to do once they come back. Um, right now, there's no procedure in place, and people, um, parents, some number of them have already been ordered deported, and now they're back. Um, what's going to happen to them? Uh, and uh, other people are brought back, and they're in removal proceedings. So we are continuing to place parents and family separated children in fear of expulsion from the United States. They come here, and there are no services for them. So there are some number of people who are going homeless, going hungry, um, who are still suffering the psychological and neurological logical um, problems of the trauma created by separation. So one of the big uh, things that the, the task force is doing is going to Congress and saying in the budget reconciliation package, please put money for us to give the same services at a minimum to separated families whom we're reuniting as we give to refugees and help us to have money, give us money to provide behavioral, behavioral uh, trauma services, psychological services, and other services services that these family desperately need. So while there has been progress, certainly progress, there is a lot to do, Brad, and a lot of kids um, still without their parents. Okay. Uh, by the way, I want to mention the fact that if you're listening to the show and not watching it, uh, you can find ways to easily uh, view uh, so you can see us uh, in addition to us, which maybe a mixed blessing if you see me for the first time but um anyway if you want to watch as well as listen you can see watch us on periscope.tv front slash brad bannon on facebook live at tinyurl.com front slash bb facebook live and on youtube at tinyurl.com front slash brad on youtube uh hope uh your uh, comment about conditions on the border uh, leads me to my next question. Uh, I think one of the things that Americans found most heartbreaking about the whole immigrant story were those detention camps uh, where they had these poor little children uh, locked up 
do we still have those? Oh, absolutely, Brad, and it's worse than ever. We have what are called emergency intake sites, which are these huge uh, places, not not shelters, but other places. The first one was the convention center in Dallas, the most horrific of which has over 2,000 children detained at Fort Bliss Army Center in soft-sided tents, 2,000 kids, over 2,000 kids smashed together, uh, one on top of the other. Uh, And in Pecos, Texas, Pecos is one of the farthest reaches in the United States. We have over 800 children detained, including children as young as six years old. Um, The conditions in these places are draconian. The Flores litigation team filed a legal action on the 10th of August detailing them. And this summer, whistleblowers a government, two government employees um, uh, filed a document about the horrendous conditions at Fort Bliss, which included uh, a significant number of children uh, who had suicidal ideation or had self-harmed. Um, these places have unsanitary and unsafe conditions. The workers charged with caring for the children, many of them have no credentials, and there's improper care and supervision. I've heard uh, many, many stories, Brad, but one of the things that, you know, really was beyond the pale at Fort Bliss when children didn't wake up. These are children smashed together in huge tents. One of the supposed child care workers blew a horn over the intercom system for a long period of time. Now imagine that you're sound asleep and all of a sudden there's the noise of blasting of a horn, like what we have for declaring an emergency. What kind of people do that? And what kind of place is that to hold children? And let me just say parenthetically, any child who comes without a parent, who comes with grandma, who comes with an older sibling, an aunt, is placed, is considered unaccompanied and placed in one of these shelters. There are Afghan children being evacuated right now who are going to be and are classified as unaccompanied. As of last count that I know about, there were 50 of these children put in these same shelters um, that are holding children principally from Central American countries. Nobody speaks the languages that the Afghani children speak Nobody knows how to care for children as traumatized as they are. It's a horrible situation, Brad, with no end in sight. Okay, I'm going to ask you a more general question. You know, this thing, this horrible situation at the border has been going on for years. You know, and, and Congress refuses, you know, there's been no progress on immigration reform. I don't think they're even talking about it in Washington that I know, uh, or maybe people are, but they're certainly been drowned out if they are. I'm sure you are. But what does America need to do about immigration? America needs to have legislative action. There have been some wonderful bills proposed. Senator Jayapal, Congresswoman Jayapal and Senator Merkley have made proposals, as well as other people. And what you say is what we need, Brad. We need Republicans and Democrats to get over themselves and come together over the issues of immigration and particularly over the issues of non-citizen children and help us. There are lots of great minds there with good educations who could come up with a solution if there was a will, there's a way. Okay, 
Uh, Hope, thanks very much for joining us. Our guest in this half hour was Hope Fry, the co-founder and executive director of Project Lifeline. Uh, if you want to reach Project Lifeline, uh, their Twitter handle is at Project Lifeline, all one word. Uh, we'll be right back with more of Deadline DC. Our guest in the next segment will be Sarah Jones, the editor-in-chief of uh, Politicus USA, and we'll talk about the hot political stories of the week. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. Uh, in this segment, we're going to discuss the political news of the week uh, and a big part of the news, and it certainly has impl- political implications, uh, is the uh, horror terrible uh, Category 4 hurricane that hit New Orleans uh, very hard yesterday. And we're going to play a clip on the uh, on Hurricane Ida uh, from NBC News to start the segment off. Let's head right to New Orleans. NBC's Jay Gray is there. Jay, if you can hear us, good to see you. Jay, good morning. Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing there. We know the city's in the dark this morning. Any word on how long people might be without power? Yeah, Savannah, I I think it's going to be a wild look. There are a million plus people just in the New Orleans metro area without power. And the reason why is the transmission lines that bring that power into the city. Eight of them are in the Mississippi River. Extracting those and repairing them is going to take some time. While we do have a break from the wind that was very severe here and the rain that fell straight for 16 or so hours, I want to give you a look at what we have behind us here. And it's a portion of a rooftop that was thrown into the French Quarter. And, And what you can see is that as it was pushed into the French Quarter, it pulled down an overhead street sign here, the arm that held that up mangled and twisted, pulled to the ground. As you work up and to the balcony, what you'll see is some shutters that were pulled away from doorways, the doors forced open by the severe wind that whipped through this area, and that's across the French Quarter. This is uh, not a extraordinary thing. You see this across the French Quarter, along with broken glass, you hear alarms uh, across most every block in the French Quarter. Okay, that clip was from NBC News on the devastating storm that hit New Orleans yesterday. And my guess is they'll be picking up the broken pieces for weeks, if months. Uh, This half hour of Deadline DC with Brad Bannon is brought to you by my company, Bannon Communications Research, which polls for progressive issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. The big question today is whether a summer full of vicious hurricanes, devastating drought, and intense heat build public support and and awareness of the fight against climate change, and whether it moves Congress to take action on Joe Biden's infrastructure and green energy package. The answer, I hope, is yes, because the world is watching. You can read the rest of this column and all my columns for the Hill at muckrack.com front slash Brad dash Bannon. That's muckrack, M-U-C-K-R-A-C-K dot com front slash Brad dash Bannon. Our guest in this half hour is our good friend, uh, Sarah Jones, the editor in chief of Politicus USA. 
Uh, Sarah, as you probably know, is the star of stage, screen, and internet. Uh, her web, the website for Politicus is P O L I T I C U S U S A. Uh, the Twitter handle is the same, Politicus USA, and Sarah's Twitter handle is Politicus uh, Sarah, S-A-R-A-H. Uh, Sarah, welcome back to Deadline DC. I'm glad you could join us today. Thank you so much for having me, Brad. It's always a pleasure. Okay, let me start off with this. Uh, this has been another horrible summer. Uh, you know, besides the obvious, the pandemic, uh, we've had uh, vicious tropical storms, uh, devastating drought that produced uh, widespread forest fires in the western United States, uh, and intense heat. Uh, do you think anything good will come of this? Will it uh, broaden political, you know, public awareness of the dangers of climate change? Well, I mean. Do I think anything? I do think that we are going to see something good coming from the Democrats. I don't think that Republicans are going to publicly get behind anything that's called climate change. I don't, you know, there's been decades long propaganda campaign by climate change deniers and, and energy companies who disconnect weather from climate change. So those who don't believe in it aren't going to be swayed by anything hurricanes, fires, nothing. And I mean, what's happening right now with, with Ida and um, is bringing back, I'm sure, for the people who live there and for those of us just watching, a lot of Katrina flashbacks. It's absolutely horrific. Um, I don't think people are going to start to support, people who don't believe in climate change are going to start to support it until they see the benefits coming to them personally. Lower energy prices, good jobs, or you know, anything tangible that's in their own lives. And again, this is just something we keep coming up to, um, butting our heads up against conservatives when if it doesn't do something for them personally, it's very hard to get them on board. Um, but I am hoping that the infrastructure package as part of the reconciliation bill will pass. I think it will be, you know, they're going to have to appease uh, Manchin and uh, Cinema. And I think some things are going to be whittled away. Um, let's just keep our fingers crossed that because, you know, the U.N., the scientists at the U.N. just a few weeks ago said we're running out of time. We, yeah, we don't sure. we don't have time to wait. We don't have time, you know, to whittle things down. But unfortunately, this is the process. This is the process that we live by. And until we get uh, Republicans to, um, you know, come to the party of reality and start governing instead of. The, what they're doing now, um, I, I don't have a lot of faith in them. But I do think Democrats, you know, we just saw Nancy Pelosi push this thing through. Uh, she is uh, a weapon um, for the people, literally. <laughs> and I do have a lot of faith in her. I have faith in Schumer. And um, I also think that, you know, Vice President Harris will step in um, and Biden as well behind the scenes to keep twisting arms till we get what we need. Well, first of all, I want to second that. I think Nancy Pelosi, regardless of what you think of her, is a legislative genius. Uh, I think the fact that she's moved this far in the House um, is truly amazing. Uh, let me ask you follow up uh, to get you know this thing through the Senate. 
uh, it needs all 50 Democrats to vote for it. Uh, and then uh, Vice President Harris, uh, how much do you think the Biden administration is going to have to give up? Uh, for instance, I know I, I saw last week that uh, Senator Sinema from uh, Arizona, a Democrat, said she would not vote uh, categorically said she would not vote for the $3.5 trillion package. Are they, uh, the Biden administration going to have to whittle that down significantly to get it through the Senate, to get all Democrats on board? I think they are going to have to whittle it down. But, um, I mean, we know they are because of Manchin and Cinema. Um, what they want to take away remains to be seen right now. And I would, I would hope that whatever they want to be taken away uh, they're forced to defend that publicly because then we need to know why why do you not think X, Y, and Z in the infrastructure package, for example, is important? Why do you think that we don't need, you know, um, updates on our power lines and public transit and uh, the levees and, you know, you can just go on and on down to, to every crisis that we are having, bridges, um, and make them explain that publicly. But I don't know that... Um, I, I hope that other Democrats do that. You did see some of that happening on cable news uh, this last round. So I hope to see more of that. I think that uh, you know people keep saying, why doesn't Biden push them to do this? I think that he is doing what he does behind the scenes. Um, maybe when it comes closer to the time, he will start making public pushes. But it's very effective to have other Democrats um, on cable shows and you know pushing forward to say why why are you why would you not vote for this we all need this and we even saw um you know progressives making this point last time um on television like you know this is what we need and and this is the position of progressives and i thought that it, it was made really really well it was a very strong point it was hard to argue with um so i'm just hoping that that continues i do we have a lot of people who uh, in the House, for example, who are making these really good arguments and doing it publicly. So. Well, God bless them, because uh, we need all the help we can get. It's a really serious problem. Uh, and it's done just one of many issues that I think we've neglected. You know, one of the problems that Joe Biden has is the, the uh, absence of any kind of federal government action on key issues like climate change and also uh, uh, immigration, which we discussed in the first half hour with Hope Fry, are just building up until they explode uh, and they're and there'll be two big problems to deal with. So um, I hope we can uh, do something. Uh, we're going to short break now for our listeners, uh, but we'll stick, uh, hang in there with our viewers. Uh, our guest in this half hour is Sarah Jones, editor-in-chief of Politicus USA. And we'll talk more about the hot political news out of Washington when we get back from these messages. So don't go anywhere. We still have a lot more excitement on Deadline DC for you. So you'll hate yourself if you go away. Welcome back to Deadline DC and welcome back to our radio listeners. 
Uh, our guest in this half hour is Sarah Jones, who is the editor-in-chief of Politicus uh, USA. We're discussing the hot political news of the week. Uh, Sarah, let me uh, ask you about this. Uh, in the last two weeks or so, uh, there's been a significant uh, decline in President Biden's uh, job ratings. Uh, some of it is due to the, uh, uh, is, you know, due to what people are seeing uh, uh, in Afghanistan at the Kabul airport. Uh, but his uh, approvals for handling the economy uh, and also for fighting the pandemic are down. Uh, my question is, uh, what can Joe Biden do to get his groove back? I mean, he's really slipped significantly in the polls uh, and uh, it's vital uh, for him to have power over Congress uh, to resuscitate his approval ratings. And certainly it's important going into the midterm elections next year. So what do you think Joe Biden should do and can do to get his groove back? Well, first of all, I think, you know, we have to remember that th these polls are being taken in a snapshot in time right now. And Biden's facing adversity on a number of levels. So the polls are going to drop um, I think he will bring the his polling will come back that his polling with his his supporters, you know, is going to come back when he delivers some accomplishments, the reconciliation budget bill, voting rights um, and circumstances start shifting. And a lot of his polling drop, as you mentioned, wasn't about Afghanistan, but about the Delta variant and the impact on the economy. I think that COVID fatigue is really high among the American people right now. They're angry at the unvaccinated. They're tired of the pandemic. They want this whole mess to be over. I think they look at, at, at Joe Biden, at the president, and they're thinking, why can't you mandate vaccines? Why can't you mandate masks? Why can't you do more to end this? And of course, because of the way our country is set up and the uh, importance of local control, um, he cannot do a lot of those things, but I also do think that he will. He started off with the carrot, you know, get vaccinated so you don't have to wear a mask. And then Delta came and that had to go away for the most part. And I think now you're going to see he's going to bring the stick and he's got to because, you know, people are are dying. And um, we have these red state governors who are um, putting people's lives at risk. And, and there was a modeling done for Texas that that I saw. Uh, that if things continue the way it is, 800,000 people will die of COVID under uh, Governor Abbott's watch. So I think that Biden's numbers will start to tick up as he takes a stronger stand um, on the unvaccinated. He convinces people to get vaccinated. Um, and I also think that, you know, we have to remember that Biden has gotten a lot of terrible press about the pulling out of Afghanistan. And just for context, let's remember, this was a war that we were never poised to win and no one was ever able to define what winning would look like. The press um, has been, should have been praising really what has been a pretty incredible feat of coordination and bravery for all of our service members on the ground. Um, we have gotten an evacuated uh, 116,700 people as of 3 a.m. this morning. Um, I think that Biden has, has actually done really well uh, that doesn't mean that um, we're not absolutely devastated, all of us, about the deaths of 13 service members and the civilians during the attack on the airport. But I just, I just think that he has been hammered in the press. And you see this over and over again when you have a Democratic president 
there there was no unity you know when we were had a terrorist attack on this country there was unity everyone came together um didn't like what bush was doing all the time but they came together and you didn't see that it was just the minute this happened it was biden's fault biden's fault he got hammered over and over and over again that didn't help um, but i do think that people are going to see for example his own supporters one of the things that he put forward is he wants unfettered humanitarian access to afghanistan i think that's part of a foreign policy that his voters his supporters voted for um, in an election that he won you know by over seven million votes i think some of those people are going to come back but right now it's just you know tragedy travesty everything is pretty dark looking the delta variant came back and i think it it you know it's yeah, killing it a lot of people it's, it's yes, depressing the and travesty you're right yeah i agree with you i think in the last analysis americans will judge joe biden on two issues which come together uh the state of the economy and its success in fighting the delta variant uh now it's interesting to me that uh before the last few weeks when the uh there's been a big surge in the delta spread of the delta variant uh their the Biden administration had made a lot of progress on the economy uh we've created he's you know in the six or seven or eight months he's been president uh he has uh created millions of new jobs uh you know he's got much needed money out to hard-pressed working families uh one of which in the form of the uh, child tax credit uh so he was getting you know his uh he was getting credit uh for moving the economy forward and then of course the delta variant hit uh and that's how americans view of their economic prospects uh but in the last analysis i think if he deals with those two factors uh that he'll uh, he'll regroup and uh, of course a big part of that is passing the uh, uh, infrastructure program that is now uh, being considered by Congress I think if that gets done and money gets out to the economy uh, and the president continues to make progress uh, fighting the Delta variant uh, he will rebound uh, let me ask you one more question um, two of the you've mentioned uh, them both uh, uh governor abbott in texas uh and uh governor DeSantis, excuse me DeSantis uh in florida uh both have presidential uh aspirations uh and my question is uh i actually am in the middle of writing a column for the hill about this is uh do their hardcore does your hardcore stand against vaccinations? Does that improve or impair their presidential aspirations? And I thought, you know, in some sense, it probably improves it because they're playing to the diehard Republican base that they need to win the primary. And my guess is they figure, well, the important thing is winning over the diehard conservatives because we can do that. Uh, we can win the nomination and bludgeon, uh, metaphorically bludgeon Joe Biden to death uh, in his reelection campaign. So is this smart politics or bad politics for the two deadly governors? Well, I think it's um, I think they think it's smart politics and it and it, I guess given the state the republican party right now it might be smart politics 
I just want to mention that, you know, five children under 16 have died of COVID-19 in Florida in the last four weeks. And so you ask yourself, does killing kids hurt him with conservatives, DeSantis? And it's a no. It doesn't. It doesn't hurt him. Um, that's coming from the pro-life party. So I think if we look through the Trump political lens uh, of what both of the Abbott and DeSantis are doing, they're playing the authoritarian cowboy strongman, and that's, you know, little mini Trumps. Um, the press is eating that up. I don't see them getting a lot of pushback. It's like, oh, you know, he's staying the course, even though people are dying. That's not a positive, um, although it doesn't look great for Biden when he changes because and he has to pivot quickly because the science changes because we have a variant coming in. He does pivot. That's what a leader needs to do, whether it hurts them politically or not. They need to pivot. Republican Party knows that anyone who wants a, a political future with them has to show contempt for public health and basic measures taken to mitigate the pandemic. So I think it is uh, helping both of them right now. They look like big heroes for, for letting so many people die. Um, I don't know how that would work in a presidential campaign. I really think that once you need to start winning over independents, uh, which they need to win an election, unless they're going to continue, you know, they. Yeah, you'd like to think so. It would hurt them with independence. So we can. It's a crazy world we live in. Uh, thanks, Sarah, for joining us today. That's all the time we have left. I want to thank our guest, Hope Fry from Project Lifeline, Sarah Jones from Politicus USA, and also thank you to our executive producer, Mark Grimaldi, who makes sure the deadline DC trains run on time, and believe me, they need a, it needs a conductor badly. Uh, Leslie Marshall will be back tomorrow. Uh, be safe and be strong in these troubled times. Make sure you tune in to Deadline DC Mondays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time or the podcast anytime at periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. We talked to community leaders about the COVID-19 vaccine. There is no invincibility to COVID-19. I mean, I've had people in my church die in the hospital without their loved ones. They're at the funeral home and we have to limit it to five to 10 people in the beginning. No reflection, no community gatherings. The power to change this narrative is your choice. My hope is that people will get vaccinated. Find your vaccine at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. We talked to community leaders about the COVID-19 vaccine. There is no invincibility to COVID-19. I mean, I've had people in my church die in the hospital without their loved ones. They're at the funeral home, and we have to limit it to five to ten people in the beginning. No reflection, no community gatherings. The power to change this narrative is your choice. My hope is that people will get vaccinated. Find your vaccine at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services.